You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Rekindling the Reformation, Episode 7, with Walter Feit. Well, I'm happy to see you all this evening. And uh, like Mark said, we want to say hi to everyone on the internet as well. And tonight is a, is a topic that, hmm, that causes a lot of heat waves out there in the world. And it's a modern trend that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk tonight about the heritage of Israel. And uh, this is a topic which has captivated virtually the whole world. Everybody is in one way or another involved in the heritage of Israel. And there are many, many subgroups in this movement called the Israel movement. And we cannot deal with every single one of these aspects. Some believe a little bit like that, some believe a little bit like that. And so we have quite a mixture. Then we have Messianic Judaism, and then we have all of the other isms that are associated with it. So it's a complex topic and uh, we'll just sort of do a few highlights. Romans 11.26 And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. It's verses like these that have made people believe that Israel is a particular group of promise and that this group of promise has never really changed. And that you have to do everything in your power to be part of that group of promise or you are, some believe, part of that group of promise by birth only. So you have different notions in the world on this issue. But if you are part of this group, then you are safe. And some people, particularly in some of the directions associated with dispensationalism, believe that the nations will all be converted just prior to the coming of Christ and that they will have the second opportunity. So these are all interesting philosophies out there, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So some even advocate universalism as a consequence of this. That is, everybody will be saved. Romans 10 verse 1, brethren, now he's talking to the church, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Hmm. So now there's a question mark hanging over all Israel shall be saved. You know the Bible is a wonderful book and the Bible has something called the dichotomy of truth. There are aspects in the Bible which seem to be contradictory and yet are not contradictory. The famous example is 
Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He who says he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. There you have a dichotomy of truth. Two verses saying exactly the opposite. And never the two will meet except in Christ. In Christ they are both true. Because in Christ I can be perfect in my sphere as the Heavenly Father is perfect in His sphere covered by His righteousness. Imparted and imputed righteousness. So in Him the first verse is possible. But in myself there is nothing that is good. So both verses are absolutely true. So here both are also absolutely true. All that are part of the true Israel of God will be saved. It's a fact. And the prayer is that all Israel will be saved. So there's a literal Israel that we can pray for that they will be saved. And then there is another Israel that is part and parcel of this issue. Now we need to know who this Israel is because that's quite important. Embracing Judaism. Here we have the first overtures by the previous Pope to incorporate Judaism in the Judeo-Christian culture. Pope John Paul's historic visit to the great synagogue, Rome, 13. 15th of April 1986 where he affirmed God's covenant with the Jewish people is irrevocable. So God's covenant with the Jewish people is irrevocable. Then uh, the new covenant, how does that work? Are there now two covenants? One new covenant and one covenant with the Jews. We have two covenants. The Jewish religion is not extrinsic to us, but in a certain way intrinsic to our own religion. With Judaism, therefore, we have a relationship which we do not have with any other religion. I have no problem with uh, this fact that we share the same scriptures and that there is a covenant, but where the fulfillment of this covenant lies well, there we can have quite a number of interesting discussions. Well, after these overtures of the Pope to incorporate Judaism and to lift it out of its position of pushing it away and aside because of its view on Jesus Christ, the Jewish world was very interested. As Rabbi Robert Jacobs confirmed, after that Vatican II decision to accept Judaism back into this fold of the religious world as also depicted by John Paul II. And in 1965 Vatican II changed that. Jacob says the Second Vatican Council marked an historic turnaround for Catholic Jewish relations and he says John Paul II has done extraordinary things to show respect for Judaism. He was the first pope to visit a synagogue. No pope in Roman history had ever done, has ever done, 
what he has done. It gives all Jews a feeling that for the first time in Christian church history, Judaism is appreciated as having its own integrity and is not demeaned. I think it's a tremendous privilege to meet this extraordinary Pope. Well, they were very excited. The time had come to bury the hatchets. So, if Vatican II was so important, then we better look at it. This is Vatican II documents on the Jewish question. The existing links between the Christian liturgy and the Jewish liturgy will be borne in mind. Liturgy is everything that has to do with church outside of preaching. So it's all the feasts, the rituals, everything that happens in a, in a church gathering outside of the preaching. So to improve Jewish-Christian relations, it is important to take cognizance of those common elements of the liturgical life, formulas, feasts, rites, etc., in which the Bible holds an essential role. So perhaps we can have common ground when it comes to all of these issues. Vatican II document continues, Christians must therefore strive to acquire a better knowledge of the basic components of the religious tradition of Judaism. They must strive to learn by what essential traits the Jews define themselves in the light of their own religious experience. So Christians must study the rites of Judaism so that we can get together with a basis of understanding because of these common roots. They continue, the history of Judaism did not end with the destruction of Jerusalem, but rather went on to develop a religious tradition. So when Jesus said, your house has been left to you desolate, not one stone will be left upon the other, that didn't end the Jewish tradition. In fact, it developed a religious tradition. And although we believe that the importance and meaning of that tradition were deeply affected by the coming of Christ, it is still nonetheless rich in religious values. Research into the problems bearing on Judaism and the Jewish-Christian relations will be encouraged among specialists, particularly in the field of exegesis and sociology. So what do we have in common when it comes to exegesis, that is, unraveling the mysteries of the word. Wherever possible, chairs of Jewish studies will be created and collaboration with Jewish scholars encouraged. So now Christian schools must incorporate Jewish theology, Jewish eschatology into their curriculums and vice versa, and we can find common ground. So it is a merging of the religious experience. Well, since 1965, there has blossomed on this planet this movement of the Judeo-Christian culture. We see messianic 
Christianity rising astronomically. We see aspects of the dispensationalist theology in Christianity being incorporated, blended, and the eyes of focus are turning more and more to what is happening in Israel. And the Christian is just as excited about the messianic possibilities of what is going to happen there as the Jew is. And Israel invites the Pope to visit the Holy Land and uh, so these overtures continue which he then dutifully did sitting on his magnificent chair on the Mount of Olives with his upside down cross behind him which he claims is there because Peter was crucified upside down but if you know the occult world then it could certainly have a different meaning as well and uh, here he sits and the seat Jerusalem and everybody was very excited all the patriarchs came and joyful overtures by all the ladies of the orders as well fascinating well in Keys of this Blood on page 291 Malachi Martin who was a pontifical professor Gregorian University professor according to Malachi Martin the Jews must be purged of their apartness the first casualty will be that apartness in this new world in which we are living there is no room for separateness the Bible says come out and be separate and the occult world says that the first casualty in the world will have to be the separateness if we are going to have universal peace then we cannot afford this separateness so the Jew will have to give up his separateness as far as this con is concerned well Cardinal Josef Ratzinger who is today Pope Ratzinger of Pope Benedict he wrote in Ignatius Press the many religions one covenant and he wrote after Auschwitz the mission of reconciliation and acceptance permits no deferral even if we know that Auschwitz is a gruesome expression of an ideology that not only wanted to destroy Judaism but also hated and sought to eradicate from Christianity its Jewish heritage the question remains what could be the reason for so much historical hostility between those who actually must belong together because of their faith in the one God and commitment to his will so the present Pope says that these two religions must fuse they belong together the one is the root of the other Ratzinger wrote the foreword of this document the Jewish people and the sacred scriptures in the Christian Bible pontifical biblical commission 2001 and so he was deeply involved in this and he wrote, they wrote Jewish messianic expectation is not in vain and this is fascinating Jewish messianic expectation 
is not in vain. It can become for us Christians a powerful stimulant to keep alive the eschatological dimension of our faith. Like them, we too live in expectation. The difference is that for us, the one who is to come will have the traits. Excuse me? Let me just read that again. Will have the traits of Jesus. Who has already come and is already present and active amongst us. What is he actually saying here? They're actually saying that this Jesus that is going to come is going to be different from the Jesus that already came. But that's not what the Bible says. This is amazing. So we may have this expectation, this messianic expectation, whether we are Jew or whether we are Christian. It doesn't really matter. Because the one who is going to come is the cosmic Christ and not the Christ of the Bible. And here we have the basis for a theology which can become, in my opinion, very destructive of the promise, I will come again. And doesn't the Bible say this same Jesus will in like wise come again. Doesn't the Bible say that? So now, now we have a problem. If this marriage, if this marriage is a marriage of convenience outside of messianic truth, then there's something wrong. What does the Talmud say about Jesus? Talmud Sanhedrin 43a, it's one of the Talmudic books. On the eve of the Passover, Jesus was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Excuse me, does the Bible say that a herald preceded him for 40 days to announce his uh, demise, yes or no? No. In fact, the Bible says there was a, a hasty, secret trial the night before, a forced upon this trial, eventually the culmination was forced upon the Roman Empire and was executed the very next day. And there was no herald. But you see, Jewish law required a herald. So the Talmud has no problem in putting this herald in. What do they say further? Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. Ullah retorted, Do you suppose he was one of whom a defense could be made? Was he not a Mesita enticer concerning whom the scriptures say, Neither shalt thou spare, nor shalt thou conceal him? With Jesus, however, it was different, for he was connected with the government. That's an interesting article in the Sanhedrin. Now please be reminded that in Judaism, the Talmud is called the most holy Talmud, the holy Talmud. Fascinating. 
So this is a source book for Judaism. Sanhedrin 97b, Samuel B. Namani, 4th century, CE. CE stands for Christian Era. Declares a curse on those who calculate the end from Daniel. For they would say, since the predetermined time has arrived, and yet he, the Messiah, has not come, he will never come. What is meant by, but at the end it shall speak and not lie? Samuel B. Namani said, in the name of R. Jonathan, and now, this is an interesting part of the Talmud, blasted be the bones of those who calculate the end. For they would say, since the predetermined time has arrived and yet he has not come, he will never come. But even so, wait for him as it is written, though he tarry, wait for him. Should you say, we look forward to his coming, but he does not, therefore scripture saith, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. But since we look to forward to it, and he does likewise, what delays his coming? The attribute of justice delays it. But since the attribute of justice delays it, why do we await it? To be rewarded for hoping, as it is written, blessed are they that wait for him. Rab said, all the predestined dates for redemption have passed. And the matter now depends only on repentance and good deeds. Sanhedrin 97b. So in other words, the scholars know that when you calculate the time of the Messiah, using Daniel 9 as the prophetic template, you come to one and one Messiah only. And that is Jesus Christ. But they rejected him. The stone that was rejected turned out to be the capstone, the cornerstone, the foundation. No other foundation can we have than that which is Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. So they reject this Messiah that their own scriptures point to and say, well, Blasted be the bones if you try and calculate why it didn't come. Because all the predetermined times have gone. We know he should be here, but he didn't come. Can't be him, can't be Jesus, must be someone else. Then why didn't he come? Well, we weren't ready. You know, we need to grow in faith. We need all of these things. We need to be rewarded for hoping. Blessed are they that wait for him. And that is why he tarrieth. This is Jewish Talmudic theology regarding the absence of the timely Messiah. Let's have a look at this Jewish Messiah who is called Yeshua or Yahshua as some like to call him. Yeshua is seen as a Pharisee of the school of Hillel that is now in Messianic Judaism who will fulfill, please note, Jewish nationalistic ideals. 
The Messianic Messiah is concerned with Judaism and national deliverance, whereas the Christian Messiah is concerned with individual salvation. So some of these schools say, well, Jesus was there. He was, you know, he was a Pharisee. He was of the school of Hillel. And the Messiah who is to come will still fulfill the very same promises that they were hoping would be fulfilled in the first coming. But what? And this Christian Messiah, he's concerned with individual salvation. So this is a different salvation from national salvation. Jewish messianic expectations cannot be divorced from ritual Judaism and blends with Christian dispensationalism which lends itself to an exclusivity gospel. Here we have a people. Now some would like to enlarge the boundaries of national Israel and say national Israel is really not all there is to it because there were many other tribes that have gotten lost where are all these tribes and if we can all be part of these tribes then wow we can partake in this national heritage that will soon be ours complements of the Messiah this is the theology of the day Luke 17 20 to 21 and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. This is Jesus who's answering. He answered them and said the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say lo here or lo there for behold the kingdom of God is within you. Wow. So the kingdom of God that the world is awaiting this messianic kingdom of Israel the Bible says and Jesus says is not going to come by observation because that kingdom of God is in you but the world is waiting for a kingdom to come by observation they're watching the news they're watching the newspapers their eyes are on Israel. They're saying, when is it going to happen? When are the Jews going to overpower their enemies? And when will this kingdom be established? I'm waiting for it to happen in the news. I want to observe it. I want to see it. The Bible says it will not happen by observation. It's in you. 2 Corinthians 3.14 But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Paul says that if you have these expectations and you miss the culmination which is messianic in Christ, then you have missed something. So the Hebrew Bible was not about Israel and its national heritage, as many believe today. Not many. More than 96% of Christendom believes it. But it was about the Messiah. And this would change the whole story. And we have to be very sure whether we are right here or whether we are wrong. In the classic desire of ages the author writes though he was the prince of peace 
His coming must be as the unsheathing of a sword. The kingdom he had come to establish was the opposite of that which the Jews desired. He who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. He who had proclaimed the law upon Sinai would be condemned as a transgressor. He who had come to break the power of Satan would be denounced as Beelzebub. No one upon earth had understood him and during his ministry he must still walk alone. Throughout his life his mother and his brothers did not comprehend his mission. Even his disciples did not understand him. He had dwelt in eternal life as one with God, but his life on earth must be spent in solitude. There were those two disciples walking to Emmaus, dejected, sad. Their hope of the glory of Israel hung on a cross. They were dejected. They didn't understand. Now let's see what dispensationalists believe. Dispensationalists believe, as stated by Lewis S. Chafer, he is one of the top proponents in the field, he says the following. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved. Wow. So there are two objectives. The one has to do with what's going to happen down here with the setting up of the kingdom of Israel. And the other one has to do with the heavenly things that's pertaining to the church. Two things. Ryrie, one of their top proponents says, the church is not fulfilling in any sense the promises of Israel. The church age is not seen in God's program for Israel. It is an intercalation. That's pretty straightforward. So this is the basis for the premillennial faith. The church period, the entire period of the church is an intercalation. Here was Jewish history. It was going to be fulfilled just as the Jews had predicted. It didn't happen that way. The church period was intercalated, pushed into the slot. And when the church period is over, then those nationalistic promises will be fulfilled. In other words, the Jews living today have the same hope as those that lived in Jesus' time. They missed it then. Are they going to miss it a second time? Consistent literalism is the heart of dispensational eschatology. Charles Ryrie, dispensationalism today. Let me repeat that. Consistent literalism is the heart of dispensational eschatology. So that when I read the Bible, when I read the promises made to literal Israel, consistent literalism demands that they are fulfilled exactly as they are written there. Do you understand what that means? 
Let me sum it up for you. This would mean that we read the Old Testament literally by itself without the New Testament as its expositor. So now we have separated the Bible into two distinct halves. Two distinct covenants, if you like. Christ will have to reign on a literal throne of David. And the ancient nations such as Edom, Moab, Ammon will have to be resurrected to serve a literal Israel. Because that's what the promises say. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Here we have our high priest. He's sitting on the throne in the heavens. That's Jesus Christ. But the Messiah will have to come and sit on an earthly throne. So he will have to come down to sit on the throne of David. Now Vatican II said already, and all the discussions that Ratzinger and others had culminating out of that said that the one who is going to come will have the traits of Jesus. But it won't be him. Hmm. Isaiah 11:14 but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west so the Philistines must be in the west they shall spoil them of the east together they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon shall obey them these nations don't exist there has been created a state which they call Israel but these other nations don't exist. Are they going to be resurrected in order to fulfill this prop prophecy literally by consistent literalism? Hebrews 13 verse 14 says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Hmm. And the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament pertaining to Jerusalem, if they are consistent in their literalism, then we must have a continuing city, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament. Right or wrong? So here's a problem. We have two sets of criteria. Christianity says, here, on planet Earth, we have no continuing city. We're waiting for something else. We're waiting for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. But there's another group of people who are watching an earthly continuation of a city that should culminate in the kingdom. Two criteria. Hebrews 11.10 For he looked for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's another city. A totally different city. And it doesn't refer to a Jerusalem here on earth. This is another one. This is a heavenly city and it comes down as a bride from heaven. And God built it. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again. Now my question is this. Does Christ have two wives? Hosea 2 verse 19. Consistent literalism. Here we have the Old Testament promise. And I will betroth thee, literal Israel, 
unto me forever. Well, if it's forever, then the church period, <laughs> the bride, the New Testament bride of Christ must be an intercalation, must have been pushed in there because of some reason or other, unbelief or whatever, and there it is now, and it must be removed. So, I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 11.2, speaking to the intercalated church period. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. How many brides does Christ have now? Two. He has a church bride, and he has a literal Israel bride. Now, I thought Christ was a monogamist. So here we have a problem. We have two brides. Acts 13 verse 32, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. So according to this New Testament text, the promises that were made to the fathers find their fulfillment in whom? In Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the promises. So there aren't two sets of promises. There's only one set of promises. And all of those promises that the world is waiting for a observational culmination are actually fulfilled in Christ. God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children. He's talking to the church. Galatians 3.22 But the scripture has concluded all under sin, but the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the promise is by faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him amen unto the glory of God by us. So Paul takes the promises and transfers them to whom? To the church in Christ. Galatians 4, 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then heir of God through Christ. There's only one group of heirs, those that are in Christ. And the heirs cannot be dual. There cannot be one set of heirs and another set of heirs. And never the twain shall meet. Since the divine glory left the temple, we read that in Matthew 23, 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Desolate means empty. The church has become the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth 
in you. So when we're talking about the temple of God that must be restored, are we waiting for a literal temple or must the temple of God be restored in his people? What does the Bible say? If you take these verses at face value, then the eyes focused on Jerusalem, where we have no continuing city, are focused in vain. What was the purpose of Israel? Isaiah 49 verse 6, And he said, It is a light thing that thou should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob. What does Jacob mean? What does Jacob mean? And to restore the preserved of Israel, they that have wrestled with God and have overcome. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvations unto the ends of the earth. The purpose of Israel was to spread the plan of salvation. John 3.18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Fascinating what people will do. Now some jump onto this text and say, okay, we've got to get the name right. And then we'll have the story right. There is so much confusion out there. Do we have salvation by pronunciation? Matthew 12, 30. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. It's very clear. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. John 10, 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be... Excuse me, what does it say? One fold, one shepherd, not two brides, one bride, one shepherd. Isaiah 56 verse 8, The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel said, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. God wants to save the whole world, but salvation is in Christ. And all the promises are yea and amen in him. 1 Peter 2.10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The gospel is inclusive of whosoever. It's a whosoever gospel. It's not an exclusivity gospel. There is no Salvation by genetic heritage. No salvation by genes and no salvation by pronunciation. Acts 13, 32 to 33, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled, not going to fulfill, has fulfilled the same unto us their children in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. 
Acts 26 verse 22, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. There's no difference. The New Testament is the expositor, the explainer of the old. It's not two separate things. That Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Everybody is included in this plan of salvation. Not just specific groups. Galatians 4.28 Now we brethren as Isaac was are the children of the promise. So the church becomes Israel. The church is the one that wrestles with God and overcomes. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. They become the Israel of God. There aren't two Israels. There's one Israel. And all of this is in Christ. What was God's condition for the salvation of Israel? And what is it still to this very day? Romans 11.23 And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Does that imply that they have been cut out of the vineyard? Yes, as a nation, they have cut themselves loose by denying the Messiah, who is the vine. Now they can be grafted in again, how? By faith in Jesus Christ. If they abide not still in unbelief, they can be grafted in. Salvation is open to anyone. Nobody is permanently cut off. Romans 10.12 For there is no difference between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. There's one God. There's one husband. He doesn't have two brides. He has one bride. The Old and the New Testament are inseparable, writes this writer, for both are the teachings of Christ. The doctrine of the Jews who accepted only the Old Testament is not unto salvation since they reject the Savior whose life and ministry was a fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. And the doctrine of those who discard the Old Testament is not unto salvation because it rejects that which is direct testimony of Christ. Jesus said, these are they that testify of me. Skeptics begin with discounting upon the Old Testament and it takes but another step to deny the validity of the New and thus both are rejected. Absolutely right. Eusebius, writing right there in the beginning period of this new Christian fledgling church, puts it so plainly. This is his ecclesiastical history and he writes. Notice his use of spiritual Israel. Then the spiritual seed of Abraham fled to Pella on the other side of the Jordan where they found a safe place of refuge and could serve their master and keep his Sabbath. 
Fascinating. Who fled to Pella? Was it the Jews or was it the Christians? The Christians fled to Pella. No one else. And he calls them the spiritual seed of Abraham. So this is spiritual Israel. And the world out there today rejects the notion of a spiritual Israel. They accept the notion of a literal Israel. Salvation is open to the Jew as to anyone else, but not as a nation. Your house has been left to you, what does the Bible say? Desolate. Now, I have news for you. Literal Israel is not the only nation that believes that it will be the ruling pinnacle of all nations. There are many who claim to be Israel and say they will be the pinnacle nation. So now you have salvation by nationality. Matthew 23 verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It's over. Romans 10, 12, there is no difference now between Jew and Greek. That's over. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him for, I love this word, my favorite word in the Bible, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation is for whom, according to the Bible? Everyone. Let's not be confused. Now let's make sure whether, you know, am I distorting these facts or, you know? We have to be sure. Let's go to the sources. This is Professor Gershom Sholem, Jewish myst professor of Jewish mysticism at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem till his death in 1982. He's one of the the great scholars of this whole movement of Messianic Judaism and the fusion of Christianity with Judaism. Now listen carefully to what this man says as he explains it. This comes from Gershom Shalom, the Messianic idea in Judaism. And he writes, Judaism in all its forms and manifestations has always maintained a concept of redemption as an event which takes place publicly. On the stage of history and within the community. It is an occurrence which takes place in the visible world. And which cannot be conceived apart from the visible appearance. In contrast, Christianity conceives of redemption as an event in the spiritual and unseen realm. An event which is reflected in the soul, in the private world of each individual and which affects an inner transformation which need not correspond to anything outside. So is this a good summary of what we've been discussing? So here we have two different religions which are being fused into one today. The religion of the Bible and Christianity 
And the New Testament as expositor of the Old says that salvation in Christ is an individual thing. I cannot on the day of judgment stand there and say, yes, but Lord, what about these? It's between me and between God. It is given for man once to die and thereafter the judgment. That's biblical. Christian salvation is for all. John 3, 14 and 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can it be any clearer than that? Matthew 10, 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. The Bible is crystal clear. People don't want that. Why not? Because it's much easier to have a group accountability rather than an individual accountability. An individual accountability requires that I change now it's very convenient to have a group salvation all I have to be all I have to do to be saved is to be born in the right group that's pretty convenient and who then defines who that group is well, whoever the group is will decide which group it is. And so I have salvation by group. <laughs> Galatians says, Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision by faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion comes not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Here were a group of Christians who were saying, now hang on a second, you know, we have to stick to Jewish ritual because that was what well, was part of our being that was our salvation and here comes a theology which divorces it by fulfilling it in Christ and now it becomes your individual accountability no 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 it's easier to go back the other way it's human nature this is David Stern Messianic Jewish Manifesto page 150 to 154 the leading of the Holy Spirit is supplanted by the rabbinical tradition. Now this is how they think. Now obviously if you're going to study the Bible by yourself and you're going to come across all these parallels, you might just discover that there is only one way to salvation and that is to accept Jesus Christ, His salvation by grace and help Him to transform you so that you can stand up to that light. Now listen what this says. In the Messianic Jewish Manifesto, it is stated, traditional Judaism claims that the rabbis determine the halakha, the way to walk. 
what I must do, what is right, what is wrong. In the old days they had a Talmud, thousands of laws, you must do this, you must do that, you must do the other, then you'll be okay, Jack. People want a rule book. We don't have a rule book. We don't have a manual, as you've said, the Bible is not a manual of rules. The Bible is a relationship. It's a relationship. We serve a personal God. We are not saved by a rule book. There are enough religions out there that have rule books of salvation. So the Jewish rabbis determined the halakha. The New Testament transfers this authority to Yeshua's disciples. And according to Matiyahu, now please note how all the names in the Bible are Judaized. How they are made Hebrew names. And this is how we go back to the original. To believers in positions of leadership afterwards, whether the Spirit wants us to obey the rule or break it, will be decided within a communal congregational framework in which our respected leaders and colleagues help us to determine the mind of the Messiah, which we as a community and not each individual have. That's powerful stuff. The rabbi tells you what you must believe. Do we have in Christianity a system where someone tells you what you must believe and you better do it or else? Yes, yes we do. Isn't this the same mindset? Amazing that it arises after 1965. So, we go and we watch at the Wailing Wall and we see the Orthodox Jews and the rabbis and we watch them. <laughs> I stood there and I watched them and my heart went out to them they have so much knowledge they have all these scriptures at their disposal and they're standing in front of a wall which is their hope of a temple to come this writer says thus Paul in his efforts to establish Christianity met with conflict and trials in the church as well as outside of it Factions also were beginning to rise through the influence of Judaizing teachers who urged that the converts to Christianity should observe the ceremonial law in matters of circumcision. Today we have whole communities that are propagating circumcision. They still maintain that the original Israel were the exalted and privileged children of Abraham. Today we have exactly the same. And were entitled to all the promises made to him. They sincerely thought that in taking this medium ground upon Jew and Christian, they would succeed in removing the odium which attached to Christianity and would gather large numbers of Jews. Today we have the opposite. The odium attached to Christianity will be removed. Now the odium attached to Judaism will be removed and link them with Christianity. The same methodology. History is repeating itself. Let's have a look at the Jewish study Bible. Just like we have study Bibles, 
So the Jewish Messianic Jews have study Bibles which tell them what these scriptures mean and who interprets that for them? The rabbis. So let's have a look at what they do with some of these scriptures. This is the Messianic Judaism in the Tanakh which is their study Bible. Daniel 9.25-26 to 26. This is the one that speaks about the Messiah who would come, the Anointed One. And they say the word anointed in verse 25 and 26 is the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. And thus these verses have given rise to much Christian speculation in the context of other historical references. However, the anointed leader probably refers to Zerubbabel or the high priest Joshua of Ezra 3.2 and they mention a couple of Old Testament verses while the anointed one is most likely the high priest Ananias III killed 171 BCE before Christian era. 2 Maccabees 4.30-34 the prince is Antiochus for Epiphanes. Whew. This is fascinating. Because the Bible says from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem shall be and then it gives a time prophecy and that time prophecy begins 457 BC when that decree was issued and it culminates in 27 AD which happens to be bang on when Jesus was anointed. And they shifted to 171 BCE impossible it doesn't even fit the prophecy and the high priest is Ananias and the prince is Antiochus for Epiphanes that takes Daniel 7's Antichrist and shifts him into the Greek period this is a mixture of preterism which comes from Roman Catholicism Alcazar and Ribera two Jesuit priests invented this doctrine of preterism and futurism to throw the heat off the little horn power which we have already discussed so here you have a total mixture of Catholic counter-reformation theology mixed in with messianic theology and you have a total ignorance of the messianic prophecy and this is what they must believe so Jesus is out of the equation here they've moved him 171 years before the Christian era let's see what they do with Isaiah 53 this is their study notes I'm reading directly from them Christians have urged that this passage in fact predicts the coming of Jesus medieval rabbinic commentators devoted considerable attention to refuting this interpretation and we all understand why the servant is probably the nation of Israel so Jesus gets replaced with whom? with the nation of Israel and the nations are stunned that such an insignificant and lowly group runs out to have been so important to the divine plan Jesus is gone and these are messianic Jews this is fascinating what is this marriage all about with the Judea Christian culture here you have Pope Paul VI and what is that around his neck over there? Pope Paul VI wears the symbolic the symbol of the Jewish high priest and rational of judgment here he's wearing the breastplate of judgment 
He has set himself up as the judge. He is the high priest. Only the high priest may wear that breastplate. And here the Jews reward Benedict for his support. September 2005, rabbis from different branches of Judaism present him with their symbolic gift to show their gratitude for his work in their behalf. So now we have two religions, one which rejects the Messiah, even in its messianic form, it's not the same Messiah, marrying with those who supposedly accept the Messiah. This is a total confusion. 2008, Rabbi Arthur Schneier writes, shakes hands with Pope Benedict at the Park East Synagogue in New York. The Jewish community makes a valuable contribution to the life of the city, Benedict said. And I encourage all of you to continue building bridges of friendship with all the many different ethnic and religious groups present in your neighborhood. Please don't misunderstand me. I've got lots of Jewish friends. I love my Jewish friends. One of them is one of my great friends. He's a great pal. I like him. But he doesn't understand who the Messiah is. And here is a problem. And I worry for him. And here what, we have, re what have we reduced religion to? To a social structure where we all get on fine? This is about truth. Pope Benedict participates in Jewish ceremonies in the synagogue of Cologne, August 19, 2005. Here he sits. Well, let's get together. Let me show that I go along with all of this. We're one happy family. One happy family. And please note this picture over here. This is a classic. March 2006, Cardinal Caspar. He's the cardinal concerned with ecumenism in the Roman Catholic Church, holding the Talmud with Rabbi Charlotte while visiting Yeshiva University at Brooklyn, New York. Here they're holding up the Talmud together. The Talmud which has the most horrendous things to say about Jesus. So horrendous I won't even repeat them here. I won't even repeat them. I've cut them out of my lecture. They're just too horrendous. And the two religions holding it up together. Ha! Huh. Fascinating. December 4, 2007, Catholic Bishop Jerome Listetsky, head of the Diocese of La Crosse, on Wisconsin celebrates Hanukkah. He addressed the Jews present saying, I am here with you this evening as a friend in that friendship I share in the confidence that together we might walk in a rededication to our freedom and mutual respect directed by the light which guides our path. He's not even talking to Messianic Jews here. He's talking to Judaism, Judaism as it is. And here we go. And we keep the same feasts, and we have the same expectations. This is very strange. Ratzinger, writing on liturgy. Remember, that's the present Pope. He says about renewal and worship. In the piety of the Old Testament, we find a double division of time, one determined by the weekly rhythm which moves towards the Sabbath, and the other by feast days. Even in its ordering of time, Christianity retains a profound interior continuity with its Jewish heritage. 
the great feasts that structure the year of faith are feasts of Christ. The feasts of the saints from the earliest times were formed part of the Christian year. The whole meaning of the Jewish Passover is made present in the Christian Easter. So here we are linking all the feasts and we're going to keep them and he's right and he's wrong at the same time. The seven annual Jewish feasts in type and anti-type. The Passover, Nisan 14, that was the crucifixion. The Passover was the lamb without blemish of which not a bone was to be broken that typified the death of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion. The very next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Nisan 15. This bread, this unleavened bread represents his body and that is Christ in the grave. The first fruit feast, Nisan 16, the resurrection. These feasts could fall on any particular day unless you were a Sadducee then you would always celebrate the feast of Nisan 16 on the day after a seven-day Sabbath, but not if you were a Pharisee. So for the, for the Sadducee, it always fell on a Sunday. For the Pharisee, it could fall on any day depending on the appearance of the new moon. So here were two distinct sects. The Sadducees believed in a literal fulfillment of the prophecies of Israel just like people today in fact their belief system was so identical to today it's mind-boggling and when they were later incorporated and disappeared taken up into the Samaritans one Samaritan Simon Magus snuck his way to Rome and became the sorcerer to Nero but I'm not going to go there these three feasts are all fulfilled in Christ. So if I keep these feasts, then I am expecting a further fulfillment. I cannot keep these feasts because in Christ they are fulfilled. Then you have the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, which is the law was given 49 days after the Exodus, and here the outpouring of the Spirit was given to testify that the fulfillment is in Christ Jesus. That Holy Spirit, that empowerment to preach Christ was given then. Is it gone? Or have the centuries in between preached that message? Yes or no? Of course they've preached it. The Reformation preached it. Christ has been preached since then. That spirit is not gone. If I keep this feast, then I am awaiting this outpouring that will enable me to preach the Messiah in power and glory. He's already come. I can do that right now. I don't have to keep a feast to wait for it to happen. They've all been fulfilled in Christ. The other three are a bit more complicated and we need a lot more information for that and there is a whole lecture on it so I'm just going to briefly tell you that the final feasts are fulfilled in the final message to a world standing on the brink. The Feast of Trumpets 
is the heralding of the judgment, the second advent movement, which says the time of judgment has come. And that has a specific prophetic fulfillment, which I won't deal with in this lecture. The Day of Atonement is the pre-advent judgment. It is the time in which we are living right now. It is fulfilled in a lifestyle. It is fulfilled in a preparation for the coming of the Lord. Because that's what it prefigured. It prefigured a time of preparation for the coming of the Lord. And that was heralded by John the Baptist. And that same message is going to the world today as another Elijah message and the feast of tabernacle is the second advent hope the waiting for Christ but these have been fulfilled where in the Bible does it say that we need a liturgical calendar incorporating the Jewish feasts please note what Colossians says Colossians 2.14 blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which is contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to the cross it's talking about a handwriting of ordinances and having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink in issues of food and drinking and rituals in respect to a holy day or a new moon or of the Sabbath days, plural, referring to all of these holy ritualistic days that were part of the ceremonial law, which are a shadow of things to come, pointing to the Messiah, but the body is Christ they are fulfilled in Christ now please note the meaning of the handwriting of ordinances in Colossians is often changed today in theology from referring from the ceremonial law to be a record of debt that was nailed to the cross but the phrase refers to the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and ordinances are decrees and not a record of debt the ordinance that was against us is the ceremonial law and cannot be a record of sins and is only removed after the day of atonement for the redeemed and after the millennium for the lost. So this record of sin is a modern theology but the Bible speaks about a handwriting of ordinances, ceremonial feasts that pointed to the Messiah that would be taken away. Deuteronomy says take this book of the law this handwriting and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord not in the ark where the ten commandments the moral law were of your God that it may be there as a witness against thee and this handwriting was as a witness against us it's ceremonial law Ephesians says exactly the same thing having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In his flesh he abolished that law. For to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh. Jew and Gentile come together and the ceremonial law that pointed to Christ is gone. 
For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. What about Daniel? Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Modern theology throws this verse into the future. Daniel applies it to the Messiah. And in the last week of seven years, three and a half years into his ministry of preaching this gospel, Christ dies. Three and a half years, the gospel goes exclusively to the Gentiles, uh, to the Jews. In the midst of the week he shall cause sacrifice and oblation to cease. The sacrificial system is over. In the spring of A.D. 31, Christ the true sacrifice was offered on Calvary. When Christ on the cross cried out, it is finished, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. This veil was significant to the Jewish nation. It was of the most costly material of purple and gold and was of great length and breadth. At the moment when Christ breathed his last, there were witnesses in the temple which beheld the strong heavy material rent by unseen hands from top to bottom. This act signified to the heavenly universe and to a world corrupted by sin that a new and living way had been opened to the falling race and that all sacrificial offerings terminated in the one great offering of the Son of God. What are we waiting for? A temple? So that the sacrificial system can be inaugurated again which pointed to a Messiah who has already come that makes no sense. It was Christ's desire to leave to his disciples an ordinance that would do for them the very thing they needed. That would serve to disentangle them from the rites and ceremonies which they had hitherto engaged in as essential. And which the reception of the gospel made no longer of any force. To continue these rites would be an insult to Jehovah. Eating of the body and drinking of the blood of Christ, not merely at the sacramental service, but daily partaking of the bread of life to satisfy the soul hunger, would be in receiving his word and doing his will. Christ put an ordinance into place. He put the communion service right there to commemorate the word and his will. While tarrying at Corinth, Paul had caused serious apprehensions. He wanted to go back. He wanted to say, let's do it the Jewish way. And what happened to him? It didn't work. Let's look at the modern trend that we may not say Jesus. Because with all this Judaizing, we must go back to the Hebrew. We must go back to our roots. So we may not say Jesus. We must say Yeshua or maybe Yahshua. The New Testament was written in Greek, not in Hebrew. How do we know? Hebrews 1.38 Then Jesus, the Greek word there is Iesus, turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, that's a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew language was not generally spoken, it was Greek that was spoken. Which is to say when translated, says the New King James Version, Teacher, didaskalos, where are you staying? So here the Bible quotes a Hebrew word and immediately translates it into the Greek. So in what language was the Bible written? 
in Greek because they had to understand it. So when they used the Hebrew work for the Greek reader, they immediately had to translate it. If I had to speak to you in Afrikaans tonight, you wouldn't understand it unless I immediately translated it for you. So in what language is this lecture being presented if I have to translate it for you? In English. John 1.41 He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Hebrew, Messias. Which is translated Christos. The Christ. So immediately the Bible translates it, and that is the word that is used always. Here's another example John 1 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, and you shall be called Kephas. That's an Aramaic word. Immediately it needs translating for those who don't speak the Aramaic but are rather Greeks which is translated Petros. That's the Greek. What's the English for Petros? Stone. Pebble, if you like. So in what language was it written? It was written in Greek. John 9, 7, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, that's a Hebrew word, which is translated sent, apostello. He went and washed and came back seeing. So when there's a Hebrew word, they translate it into Greek. When there's an Aramaic word, they translate it into Greek. And Paul consistently uses Iesus and Christos even when writing to the Hebrews. Why didn't he say Yeshua when he wrote to them? Why did he say Iesus? And why didn't he say Yeshua, Messias? Why did he say Iesus, Christos? For if Jesus had given them rest, and they uses Iesus, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? So consistently the Bible uses the Greek form. When I go to Poland, there's a banner across the road which says, Professore Voltera Feitsky. And I suppose it's me. Because that's how you would say my name in Polish. Now if it is correct and good enough to translate the Hebrew into Greek, is it then not good enough to translate it into English or any other language? Yes or no? Now here's a fascinating thing. The Bible was written in Koine Greek. Do you know what Greek that was? That was the Greek of the people, the common people. So later, Greek scholars thought, well, this is rather infradig. Uh, we better translate it into classical Greek. And they lost the whole nuance. All the typology gets lost. All the chiasms get lost. And so their classical translations petered out. And the coin Greek remains. And when God chose to wake up a people... And to give them the word again, he chose a Martin Luther. And he said to Martin Luther, go and translate that Bible. That was no easy task. What language did he translate it into? German? Didn't exist. There were hordes of dialects around. And Martin Luther didn't only have the monumental task of writing that Bible 
but he had to create the words as it were. He's actually the basis of what we call High German, Hochdeutsch. And if you want to know how different a dialect can sound from real German, whether you understand it or not is irrelevant, as long as you see that they're totally different. Go into the cellar and get me a bucket of potatoes. Geh mal in den Keller und hol mir einen Eimer Kartoffel. That's what it sounds like, that sentence. In Plattdeutsch it would be, jetzt jeist mal auf die Läufe, holst die Eier, ich rompere. Sounds like two different languages, doesn't it? And here God says, I want them all to understand it. Martin Luther combined these. And he wrote it in a language where everybody could understand. Tyndall did the same thing and Cranmer, the archbishop who paid with it for his life, he put the great Bible down in the churches and he supplied a reader so that even the illiterate could hear the word of God in their own language. When God raised up movements, he used the language of the people. This notion that we must all become Hebrew scholars in order to be saved is a misnomer. There's no salvation by Hebrew. It's my favorite anomaly these days. <laughs> so what don't we have? We don't have a salvation by birth. We don't have a salvation by lineage. We don't have a salvation by pronunciation. We don't have a salvation by genetic composition and we don't have a salvation by Hebrew. It's perfectly alright to say Jesus Christ or to say Jesus Christus or to say Jesus Christus. It's fine. Now let's have a look where this movement leads to. It gets rather interesting. I don't know whether you know this man. This is Herbert W. Armstrong. He is the founder, as it were, of the British Israelite movement. And he wrote this famous book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. One of the very pivotal books of prophecy is the book of Daniel, he says. Daniel wrote in and after the time of the Chaldean king Nebuchadnezzar's invasion and captivity of the kingdom of Judah. But the kingdom of Israel had long before been invaded, conquered, and its people moved out of Palestine. That's what he's writing. Transported as slaves to Assyria, and then he gives the dates, and then he says, that is 117 to 133 years before Daniel wrote. Years before the book of Daniel was written, most of the Assyrians with those Israelite slaves had migrated from ancient Assyria northwest to Europe. How far northwest were they finally settled was not then known. They had become known as the last ten tribes. But today we do know. Marvelous. Finally we know who Israel is and where those tribes got to. And he's going to tell us. He talks in chapter 3 about the national greatness promises of Israel. Yet the Jews never received it. Why? In the sacred passages we read all the promises and the covenants of God, all the sonship and the glory belong to Israel. 
Yet we must face the astounding fact that our white English speaking peoples, not the Jews, have inherited the national and physical phases of those promises. How could this have happened? So he looks at the glory and the most powerful nations. They're not uh, little Israel, literal Israel. They are the white race. This is the coronation chair of the British Empire. The coronation chair which monarchs are crowned was commissioned by Edward I. This is what it looks like. And here is a space underneath where this stone is placed. Apparently it was brought to Britain by Jeremiah, according to Armstrong. We know that in the Bible Jeremiah history is not fully explained as to what happened to him but Armstrong tells us what happened to it it finally ended up the stone in Britain and you know what's amazing this stone was the stone on which Jacob rested his weary head and today the British monarchs get to rest their weary posterior on it imagine that Fascinating. There's so much argument about this stone because the Scots said, hey, this is our stone. And the English said, no, this is our stone. And so the Queen has been very kind. And in 1996, the British government decided that the stone should be kept in Scotland when not in use at coronations. And on November 15, 1996, after a handover ceremony at the border between representatives of the Home Office and the Scottish Office, it was returned to Scotland and transported to Edinburgh Castle where it remains. Although the stone is back in Scotland, Edinburgh Castle is the military headquarters of the UK Army in Scotland, so they're still arguing about whose posterior should be placed upon this magnificent stone. Do you know, this is amazing. And these people honestly believe that they are the Israel of God. And who knows why they have such military ambitions. But the plain fact, he goes on, that the great nation promise refers only alone to race, not to one seed of Galatians 3.16 who was Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of God, but to the plural multitude seed of natural fleshly birth is made certain by God's repetition of his promise in greater detail. Notice carefully, understand these promises. Wise up. You could be Israel, everyone sitting here, and you could be saved just by having been born. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Eternal appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk with me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thy exceeding thee exceedingly. Thou shalt be a father of many nations. So it can't just be Israel over there that we have in Palestine. And you see, that's why we're all working together. Thou shalt be the father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations shall I make thee. And then he says the separation of the birthright and the scepter. How does he explain that there is a literal Israel and that there is this other Israel, this mighty power? He says the spiritual promises, 
The promises of the one seed, Christ, and of salvation through him, the Bible calls scepter. But the material and national promises relating to many nations, national wealth, prosperity, power, possession of the Holy Land, the Bible calls birthright. So we have a power religion. And he says if things go wrong, it's because we don't accept we're Israel and we don't claim the promise and we don't make right with God. Wake up, white European race, stand up, take your heritage, it's yours. You are to rule the nations with an iron rod. A birthright is something which is once right by birth and it's nothing to do with grace which is unmerited pardon and a free gift which is not one's right. It has to do with race, not grace. This is a fantastic theology. It includes all the first phase of God's tremendous promises to Abraham. Please, I don't want you to forget the first half of my lecture where we spent considerable time showing that the promises are yea and amen in Christ and Christ alone. Did we not do that? Here we are divorcing these promises from all those texts in the Bible. This is a gross distortion of biblical salvation. It includes all the first phase of God's tremendous promises to Abraham. This legacy guaranteed on the authority of God Almighty. Unconditionally multitudinous population, untold wealth, material resources, national greatness, world power. Man, this is fantastic. I have to be part of this Israel so that I can get part of this cake. And this is what the people believe. And believe me, there are millions who believe it. What does Isaiah say about this? Splitting the houses of Israel into two. The Bible says in Isaiah 8.14 He will be as a sanctuary but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to what? Both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Bible has no such distinction as Armstrong makes. Both houses are called Israel. Not the one called Judah and the other one called Israel. It's not even biblical. Christian hope lies in the kingdom of God, 2 Peter 3.12, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There is no such thing as the kingdom coming by observation. These people are getting millions to climb onto this dispensationalist bandwagon. Israel's new land of proof that our white... Now, this is the most marvelous theology under the sun. I want you to listen to this. Of proof that our white English-speaking peoples today, Britain and America, are actually and truly the birthright tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh of the lost house of Israel. There is so much that we have space but for a small portion of this book. So, now listen to this. The Hebrew word for covenant would be pronounced in its anglified form as Brit. <laughs> now the Hebrew is Berit. So he says, let's call it 
And the word for covenant man or covenant people would therefore be simply British. And so is it mere coincidence that the true covenant people today are called British and they reside in the British Isles. So if you have the fortunate occurrence of having been born of Anglo-Saxon descent, you have a ticket to heaven. National wealth and prosperity just by that mere act. Yes, we are the God's chosen people, Israel. Think what that means. Chosen not for favors while we defy our God, but chosen for service. We have failed to perform. We should shout for joy at the discovery of our true identity. We should be brought to repent and to turn to God and to get back of, of the crusade by radio and by printed word to warn our people and to call upon God in real heart-rending prayer for divine deliverance. The problems we have now is because we have forgotten that we are Israel. We must stand up. This is a Christless salvation. The sevenfold intensity of punishment now soon to come upon the American and British people is simply the great tribulation. It will be the most frightful intense punishment in time of trouble ever suffered by any people. And so we have all of these people. The terrifying severe punishment is simply a correction of our people. Just realize who you are. Just realize that you're Israel and you will be okay. Because then you can say, Lord, bless me and pour the promises of Israel on me. And voila, your problems will be solved. Well, that's British Israelism. Here's another group. They're saying, nah, that can't be right. So we have the Mitchpah Lev Sison. And it says, we believe the following. I'm not going to read all this. The Apostle Creed, including the absolute deity and centrality of Yahushua, so they believe in the Messiah, they believe in the infallibility of the Bible, they believe in the inspiration from Yahweh, the olive branch, so they believe all of these things. They believe in the rejection of the charismatic type babbling. They believe in the female gender of the Ruach HaKodesh. We better get these Hebrew names right or else you're going to fail dismally. And her identity as the heavenly mother. So the Holy Spirit is feminine. They reject the pagan, Christian, Easter, and all of these things. All things that make people excited, you know. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And they have all of these salvation by faith in the atoning work of the Messiah. Their rejection of the one and only true church doctrine in favor of the universal body of the Messiah. Post-tribulation rapture in which the children of the first resurrection rise to meet Yeshua as he returns to the earth to usher in the millennium, returning with him to reign on the earth. There they go, here they come, here they go, here they come. This is incredible. They allow women into their ministry. They're very, very open. They affirm the immortality of the soul and they affirm that the ten lost tribes are not lost. But of the seed of Abraham is dispersed in every nation, through con though concentrated in northern Europe and their colonies, while they reject British Israel claims. So we don't believe in the British Israel, everybody's Israel. And guess what? 
They're going to build 12 end time cities of refuge to pass through the tribulation and into the millennium reign. They better get on with it. We're in trouble. This is amazing. Things that have changed, they've abandoned Sunday and they're now keeping the Sabbath. So hordes of people are running to them. They're adhering to the true names of the deity. Elohim, Yahweh, Yeshua, Ruach HaKodesh, and all of those fantastic things. They abandon the concept of eternal punishment and eternal hell in favor of universalism. I want, if I have a choice, I'll join them. Because this one says everybody's saved. That's what universalism is. You don't have to be British to be saved. You can be saved no matter what you are. They reject the Republic of Israel as the only one. No, no, no. We're all part of this story. And we believe that the Ruach HaKodesh is in fact seven heavenly mothers. Did you know that? There are actually seven heavenly mothers up there. The Holy Spirit is seven females. I always say, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. If she was female, the Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. He was masculine. Their mission statement to go to the old world and to gather all of them together to plant these keys of truth and to gather the remnant of the lost tribes of Israel. Now here it gets worse. The white nations of Europe and Africa are the true Israel. This is Pastor Nisa. He was associated first probably with the British Israel movement. He talks about the origin and the destiny of the white race. And then he says, did you know that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were not Jews? Read all about it in this book. So he has this dichotomy, Judah and Israel. With the imminent second coming of Christ, Israel will come to a true regeneration, will be filled with the Spirit and with Jesus the Messiah as their Lord. They will lead the world back to a state of perfect harmony with God. The Anglo-Saxon, Germanic and Celtic nations are the present descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel must hear. So here we have salvation by lack of pigmentation. You have to be white to be saved. Thus, for instance, the nation Israel occupied a central position in the vision of the prophets. We give the Jew or the church or both the central place. We do not know how to read the compass. Matthew 15, 24, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's saying, only Israel is saved. Nobody else, the Messiah, was only sent to Israel. And he quotes Matthew 15, verse 24. That's his proof. And his proof that only white people belong to that Israel, uh, I think it's thumbnology. Let's read this text. This is interesting. Matthew 15. Now please remember the mindset of the Jew. Even after his resurrection, Jesus had to prompt Peter to go to Cornelius. Because Peter was still bigoted enough not to want to mix with a Gentile. And God sent him a vision to tell him it's okay to go to Cornelius. And so here is the mindset of his disciples. We want nothing to do with these unclean races. And Jesus walks. And then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
Imagine how far Jesus is walking. He's walking all the way from Israel, even if he was in the north. It's a far away. He's walking to Tyre and Sidon, to the heathen nations. And behold, a woman of Canaan, a Canaanite woman, unclean, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away! For she cries out after us, she's unclean, get rid of her. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He quotes this verse as saying that only Israel is saved and all the other nations don't qualify. Do you know that some groups go so far as to say that if you are not white then you don't even qualify as a human being, you're an animal. Now that gets pretty harsh. Do you know how far it goes then? Well now you have to have two creations. You have a creation where God creates man in his image. That's Israel. And then you must have evolution to get the rest to come out of the animal. So now you have a God of evolution and you have a God of creation all nicely mixed in there and to distinguish the two you better get your pronunciation right and use the Hebrew words of the deity and anybody who has any form of pigmentation in him is lost. Jesus answers his bigoted disciples and he says I have not been sent but to the lost children of Israel. Excuse me Lord what are you doing up there in Tyre and Sidon with a Canaanite woman? And he carries on. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, Now for whose benefit is he saying this? It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Whose theology was that? Just ask the Sadducees. You'll know what the, whose theology that was. Those out there were dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Who's the lost children of Israel? That Canaanite woman who trusted in him as her redeemer and her God and her Messiah. And she worshipped him. And he acknowledged her as such. What a bigoted religion to turn it around and to apply it to yourself on the basis of an opinion. Groups claiming descendants from the lost tribes. Many groups claim to descend from specific lost tribes. These include Ben Ephraim from the south of India, Benai Benashe from the north of India, the Ethiopians, the Persians, the Nigerians, the Igbo Jews claim to be the lost tribes, and then you have the Lemba tribe from southern Africa, and you have the house of Israel in Ghana, so you have black Israelites, you have white Israelites, you have British Israelites, you have all the other groupings as Israelites. This is total confusion. Kashmiri people claim to be the lost tribes. 
from the northwest of China you have lost tribes. There are quite a number of people today who cling to the ancient tradition that they are descended from the Jewish lost tribes, the Afghanistan people, the Mohammedan Berbers, the Christian Igbo people. So it's salvation by self-definition. Here you have the black Hebrew Israelites. The queen of this movement was in one of my lectures. Fascinating person. Very educated. Very smart. Wow. She invited me to come and visit them. Founded on the concept that the biblical Israelites were actually of dark skin complexion. Commonly known as black. The Hebrew Israelites believed themselves to be a Semitic stock originating from Jacob's 12 sons and are the original descendants of the biblical Israelites by blood and seed. So please don't think that salvation by lack of pigmentation is the only form of religion out there. Here you have salvation by plentitude pigmentation. And this is how they came into Africa. And they walked all the way through Africa. And the black people are the lost tribe of Israel. This is one of their faiths. And then you have the Rastafari. Some Rastas believe that the black races are the lost Israelites. They interpret the Bible as implying that Haile Selassie was the returned Messiah who would lead the world's peoples of African descent into the promised land of full emancipation and divine justice. There are some Rastafarians that believe they are Jews by descent through Rastafari. Rastafari being a descendant of Solomon and Sheba via Menelik. So they have it all worked out, the entire genealogy. And they believe that only these people are the lost tribe and these black race. This black race will go to heaven and they alone. The most confused individual on this planet must be a white Rastafarian. <laughs> they exist. They exist. Excuse me, if you want to be saved by pigmentation, then at least join the other group, right? This makes no sense. Here is His Majesty, Emperor Haile Selassie, regarded by many as progressive and by some as God incarnate. And here is the President of South Africa, and he's black, and uh, he is inviting the chosen First Fruit Youth Organization, CFF of the African Hebrew Israelites, were featured participants in a conference organized by Moral Regeneration Movement in the Eastern Cape in 2005. So we have black Israelites, we have white Israelites, we have all kinds of people claiming we are the chosen people of God. I want to tell you that this is a deception of the highest order. And the marriage of all of these into one conglomerate soup. And it doesn't matter whether the Messiah is Jesus or whether he is a national hero that will come and save the world. It's all unbiblical and we have to go back to the Bible. The Ark of the Covenant, considered the most holy of Christian artifacts, has been located. Where is it? It's in Ethiopia. Didn't you know that? Nobody's ever seen it, but it's there. Do you want to know what building it's in? Well, it's in that building. Surely you should have known. The building where the Ark of the Covenant is kept that nobody has ever seen.
Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You have an individual accountability to God irrespective of your color, your race, your creed, your national heritage or whatever. You are saved by Christ, by Christ and Him alone. The kingdom of God is not going to come by observation. You can keep your binoculars fixed on Israel as much as you like. And while you are still watching and while they are shouting peace and safety and building their kingdom, sudden destruction will come. We are either in Christ or we are not. And we are all equal when it comes to that. Whosoever, whosoever is the watchword of the Bible. Come unto me all that labor and are heaven laden and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. Matthew eighteen eleven. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and, oh, my favorite word, whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Let us gather around the only Savior of the world, the only one who can make it possible to be reunited in the covenant relationship with God because all the promises are yea and amen in him thank you if this episode impacted you please share it with others amazing discoveries is a donor supported ministry to help us keep producing content like this visit amazingdiscoveries.org and as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.